You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. Joining me today is Ken Sandy. Ken is a senior product leader, author of The Influential Product Manager, and industry fellow and lecturer at UC Berkeley, where he teaches the engineering school's first product management course. Ken's book, The Influential Product Manager, is a guide to navigating the challenging aspects of the product manager's role and is a must read for all PMs. I've personally taken so much out of the book and have reworked my entire product interview process because of it. Welcome to the Product Edge, Ken. Really great to be here. Fantastic. And uh, where are you at the moment, Ken? Australia or the States? Yeah, good question. Uh, I am actually a resident of San Francisco, but was born and bred in Australia. Uh, I am actually currently in Melbourne. Uh, I, I came back here quite some time back, back in March. I was actually coming here for a wedding, for a friend's wedding. Uh, and unfortunately, just as we uh, just timed it with uh, the beginning of the COVID outbreak, and so, unfortunately, the wedding was cancelled, but uh, I was able to spend some time with my family, kind of look after some folks here, and, uh, and that's been, been great to be able to do that. But, uh, yeah, I've been, been in Melbourne for quite some time. I've been using a lot of uh, web, web uh, video and, and Zoom recently. Ah, so you're uh, you're enjoying the stage four lockdowns with me? <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not great, is it? Uh, but um, one of the things that's really happening here is is it's just so important to get these numbers under control, and so uh, we do it for the community and to to sort of make sure we're taking care of each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am looking forward to them ending soon. Yes, I think we're all in that, that same headspace at the moment. Well, I'm super excited to have you here and uh, looking forward to discussing how to lead through influence. And I've noticed that a lot of people talk about influence in product management more so than perhaps other areas of, of technology and, and business. Obviously, a very important aspect of a PM's role. You've written a book about it. What is influence and why is it so important for product folk? Uh, absolutely. Well, let me first just uh, touch on that. I, I, influence has been a very important part of, uh, or leading through influence, sometimes called it's management, managing through influence. Sometimes we talk about having all responsibility and no authority. Uh, it's a very important part of product management, but it, it hasn't actually been necessarily very well understood. And so what I noticed was we would talk about a lot, but then how do you actually go about influencing in your day-to-day work, understanding how to uh, uh, coordinate your stakeholders and how to, uh, how to really make sure that you're throughout all stages of the life cycle, product life cycle, really being influential. And so what I've done is written a book to really break that, that down so it's very practical, you can really apply those lessons and, and be influential. Uh, influence to me is really, a, uh, it's, it's, it's not just about aligning around goals and outcomes and getting 
uh, people sort of to think through what we're trying to achieve, but it's also really winning their hearts and minds. And so if you think about uh, what uh, some product managers think their job is, it's about maybe writing requirements, driving an engineering team towards a, a specific solution that they, they have in mind, solving a particular problem that they think they've understood. And uh, two things happen. First of all, they don't necessarily bring everybody along with them uh, because it feels very prescriptive. It feels basically like uh, it, there's not a lot of creativity in solving those problems. The second thing is they could be wrong. And so they're not necessarily tapping the, the full uh, experience of all the different team members that they have uh, and all the different skill sets that they have at their disposal. And so really great product managers, the top 10%, really take a step back and realize that if they see their job as, as really about aligning uh, a set of beliefs, uh, um, defining a common shared purpose, talking in terms of outcomes and goals, and then enabling kind of all of those different uh, skill sets to come together to, to solve those problems that they can be a lot, a lot more successful. Absolutely. And I think um, in your book, you uh, touch upon the difference between influence, authority and manipulation and, you know, mm. clear differences there. You know, my, uh, my husband, who's a CFO, read the book after I did and was really impressed with the takeaways um, from the mm. book and the lessons around influence, because even at the C-level or at an entry point level, there's a real difference between how you influence people, take them on a journey and whether you're doing that through, you know, manipulation or authority <laughs> or that quite important. That That's right. I mean, just to define those terms a little bit more, um, if, what, where, where influence is aligning those beliefs behind a sh uh, common shared purpose, authority is really about directly controlling actions, mm -hmm. uh, whether you've got that organizational seniority or maybe you've got the relationships or, or some kind of expertise or frank, frankly, threat of consequences. Uh, manipulation is even, you know, my, 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 my mind, worse. It's really <laughs> about convincing someone to do something that's primarily in your interest. And <laughs> we can always sort of find reasons and justifications, but at the end of the day, if we're trying to achieve some goal that's not in our customers, our business, or our stakeholders' interest, uh, we're not being great product managers at all. Uh, it's an interesting thing you mentioned in terms of, like, uh, as I've grown in my career and become an executive, how it, working through influence is really the key executive skill. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't, you have to be very good at, at uh, influencing and understanding different dynamics between a peer group of stakeholders to achieve your goals. Uh, we might think that as executives go up in the ranks that they can actually just call the shots, but actually is not actually the case. <laughs> you actually have to do even more influence than, than not. What's, what's unique though about, um, about influence for a product management role is that it, at all levels of seniority from the most junior through to the most senior, influencing is the key skill to getting things done. And so if, you, if there's any better case for you know, product manage, being a product manager to set yourself up for uh, success as, as an executive, it's that. You really learn uh, how to influence across all levels and in particular influencing, quote-unquote, upwards uh, to be successful. So I'm, I'm not surprised that like, influence is 
something that your husband's talking about as a general like skill, but there's a real uniqueness to the product management role that it that at, at all levels you have to master it. Absolutely. And you said as a PM, being influential starts with how you view and approach your own role. So how should PMs view their their position? I mentioned before sort of product managers who who see their role as kind of driving, uh, defining things and driving driving a solution forward and delivering that solution. It's very easy to get kind of caught up with that being a large part of the role. But stepping back, uh, really, really great product managers see their job as, as creating the environment to be successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I like to think of like the three C's behind that. Uh, the first is is really making sure that you're gathering and sharing context, and context is in the form of of data. Uh, it's in the form of stories. It's both qualitative and quantitative, and it's really about sharing the context of the problems that you're trying to solve and why they are important to you. Driving organizational alignment, uh, in particular, you're driving. Um, uh, stakeholder alignment that these are the problems worth solving and then also making sure that your team is inspired and motivated to go tackle those problems. So context is the first. The second is around creating clarity. So clarity is, is if you think about a path from A to B, there's many ways you can get there. Uh, you could, a really great product manager will, will, make an ambiguous sort of highly uncertain future much clearer by, by really making sure there's clarity about what is it we're trying to achieve? How are we going to measure success? We know that there are many paths from A to B, but what is the next step? How do we, how do we agree on that and, and move forward? Uh, how do we make decisions? Uh, who's responsible for what? So it's all about like really pushing for crystal clear clarity across the entire team. And the last thing is to to see your job primarily as a collaborative job role, that you're all about collaborating with your team and your stakeholders to make it happen. Uh, If you you have to spend time to understand the problem, you have to spend that individual thinking time for sure, but until you, you really collaborate with that team across that whole level of problem definition all the way to, to you know, defining the solution and delivering the solution, uh, you're not going to be, you're not going to be as effective. So collaborate is the third C. Fantastic. And I guess, you know, an outstanding product manager that, you know, provides really good context, great clarity, and is really collaborative, they'll be well on their way to, to being that influential PM and exerting that influence across the organization. So let's um, let's dive into some of the practical ideas that you have in the book around um, being influential and the steps that that people can actually take. So the first one that you you talk about is owning ideas. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. Yeah. So uh, start with maybe a little bit of a, a story or or an observation is. Uh, Ideas are, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche, but ideas are cheap or ideas are plentiful. Uh, I don't, I have not run into many organizations and many stakeholders that are, uh, that have a dearth of ideas, right? So 
it's not about so much of owning the ideas in, in I as the product manager need to have all the ideas. It's like mm-hmm. owning, the pro, uh, owning the ideas in that you welcome them. So often some product managers, their reaction is wanting to avoid the ideas because it's distracting and maybe disruptive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, in, but instead welcoming those ideas from wherever they come from and to really seeing the fundamentally your job in terms of owning the ideas as, as finding the right ideas to take forward. Your job as a product manager is to build the right product, not to build the product right. That's other people's jobs. Your greatest value to an organization is to make sure you're solving the right problems for the right people, the right time. And so, uh, a, uh, uh, couple of techniques is is structure it but welcome that process of ideation in your organization seek out those people that have the ideas brainstorm and really make sure that you've got lots of robust ideas not just by the way about solutions or features but actual new problems to solve uh then go through various mindsets uh to 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 make those ideas more robust. So in the book, I talk about the explorer mindset, which I just mentioned is sort of trying to discover like possibilities and imagining new futures and imagining these different things you could go tackle, different solutions. But then um, an analyst mindset will really look very closely at the data and sort of see what patterns can I, can I, are emerging? What am I understanding from my customers? And they value, by the way, both qualitative and quantitative data. I often find that there's a a bias towards quantitative data as being more valuable. Well, actually that might be, it might be helpful, but uh, it's, it's got a couple of issues with it. Like, survivor bias you can you what you're measuring might not be your full like customer uh, set uh and secondly uh quantitative data can can sometimes tell you a trend but it can't tell you the underlying causes of those so you've really got to, as a product manager value also going and talking to your customers and just gathering a qualitative feedback so you get a sense of what what the the struggles they have with your product and the underlying causes behind those so really owning that process of and 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 getting out there and making sure you're you're owning data collection and then um and then another mindset is this challenger mindset and this challenger mindset is to identify the assumptions that you're making what could go wrong uh to, to look at every idea very critically and say, is this really the right thing that we should be working on? What might be higher priority? This is where uh, learning to say no becomes important. Uh, so really, really, uh, in particular, when you, when you work with a, which I have on a number of occasions, very visionary founders who are very excited about like all the optimism and, and change in the world, it is sometimes important to balance their optimism a little bit with like, what are they missing? And what, what are some of the assumptions they're making? Not because you want to overturn their ideas or to say no. It's like more it's about how do I make this more robust? How do we look around the corners and avoid, um, avoid the, the challenges? And then the final thing um, is, is really when you find sort of the, the best ideas, how do you take them forward? Well, execution is one thing, 
But uh, an area of, uh, of the role that I find many product managers overlook is really evangelizing those, those ideas and owning, no matter where it came from, if you're really convinced this is the right thing, you have a lot of people you need to really convince. And, uh, and it's not just pitching. It's like telling the narrative, telling the story, finding many different opportunities, all hands, blog posts, um, little pitch decks, whatever it might take. You have to evangelize because you want, you want um, that conviction to be felt by others. And um, the, 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 the organization to get excited about tackling those ideas and the, and the future. And then once that momentum starts, stepping back and letting others own it, which is also a very difficult step. So that's just an example of what owning the ideas kind of looks like from a, from a, from a process perspective. Absolutely. I love that. And I love that you identify the four different mindsets because I think product professionals could actually take some time to reflect on what's their natural mindset. You know, are they more um, of the analyst or are they more of an explorer or a challenger? And, And then it gives them an opportunity to identify where they may potentially be weaker and room for improvement to actually build those mindsets and work on that and actually seek out opportunities to, to push themselves in, in those areas. So I, I really love those mindsets. Yeah. And then the, the next part that you talk about, which I think is fascinating, is around building relationships before you need them. <laughs> and it sounds obvious when you write it on, have it written down and, and you say it, but I think a lot of people actually struggle with that and especially in a large organization or like you said in startups taking the time to work with the stakeholders or the the business leaders and the data teams and and build those relationships perhaps isn't something that people do until they need them yeah it's it's an interesting it's interesting some people are just very naturally good at this but uh the last thing you want to be as a product manager is seeking help from a key stakeholder or someone in the organization when you need it most and particularly when you're needing to potentially enter conflict and so what the the, the poor behaviors that result from that is you get a lot of uh, you don't you don't enter with trust there's not necessarily the presumption of good intent and uh you enter this sort of unhealthy conflict zone very quickly conflict is unavoidable in this role so how do you offset that? Well, you need to build trust and enter in with as strong a trust as you possibly can at the beginning. So when you do invariably hit these areas of, of um, conflict, it's much more constructive because you, you, you know where each other are coming from. So uh, building those relationships before you need them is, is, is super important. And I'm not just talking about your direct manager or some senior stakeholders I'm talking about team members across the organization, everyone who might be uh, influencing your product or you you rely on them to be successful in market. Uh, You might need data from them. You might need time from them. Or sometimes you might just need some uh, uh, for them to to lend a hand when when something is needed in an emergency. Uh, My favorite example is please treat your IT department, your front desk, and your travel um, and EA as well because they can get stuff done when you need that software to be approved quickly or you need pizzas to be delivered to your team because you've got a big bug that you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. You, want those, you want those people to be really on side. So 
that's the relate relationships across the organization. You really can't overinvest in them, to be honest. The thing is, is it is very time consuming. So I try to simplify the things a little bit for, for people. And I, I follow this kind of a trust equation kind of model, which is basically pretty simple. Uh, trust is actually about a frequency of quality interaction. You notice I didn't say depth. It's like the more often that you kind of like touch in, to sort of check in, understand people's goals, understand their area, get them to talk about what they're trying to achieve and show empathy towards that uh, and do that often. Uh, so it's not like I do a one-on-one and then six months later I'm talking to you about something I need from you. I'm, I'm building those and cultivating those relationships by just nice little quality interactions. That will go a long way. The second thing will be uh, your follow-through, your, your reputation. So if you say you're going to follow up a, a discussion with an email in 24 hours, do it. Something as small as that can really undermine. If you have a perception of like, I talk to this person and something like they, they commit and something gets done, uh, that's, that's going to be super, super valuable. So really keeping a track of what commitments am I making? What did I say I would do? And making sure you do it. Uh, and um, finally, uh, as you discuss things, the more you make it about them and not you, the less self-interested you appear. And, and so making sure that you're just following those three rules, you'll, you'll do very well in building trust uh, quickly. Not everyone by a long shot and not everyone will want to engage that frequently or, 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 uh, or uh, personally. But the more you kind of do those sorts of things, the the stronger your relationships will be. So when you do invariably have conflict in the workplace, you can approach it as as sort of an understanding, trusting kind of relationship. Absolutely. And by investing in building those relationships and and building high trust relationships across the organisation at at all levels, you're, you're ultimately, you know, seeking buying and securing buying, you reference a no surprises <laughs> policy. What, what does that mean? Uh, this, is, this is great. This is definitely <laughs> from personal experience. Okay. Uh, I like it. So, <laughs> so when dealing with uh, stakeholders, uh, we, we, we talk about buy-in a lot. That's really about making sure that, well, you're, you're counting your, your numbers right, that you've got the meetings that you're going into, the decisions you're taking, that you've actually understood where stakeholders really stand before you suddenly bring in, you know, then before you meet in, in a group, for example, gets time for them to digest, get on side. It also forewarns you of issues, like they may not be on board and it's good to know that before you sort of go in with a, with a discussion. That's you not being surprised. Now, the opposite of that is, don't surprise your stakeholders with um, information in particular that they hadn't already previewed and got a chance to kind of think through it. There are two good reasons for that. The first is it's, it takes them by surprise. That's the no surprises policy. Mm-hmm. It creates an environment where uh, they may actually lose credibility if you've got information that they should probably have known about and they're taken by surprise, that could actually reflect poorly on them and no one wants to feel that. 
they also have no chance to kind of think through it and kind of respond to it. And, and they may not even have the data. So they may actually just disagree with you or say, I can't, we can't talk about this because we need time to think about it. And so you've, you've basically set yourself back and you have now created this perception that you're, you're, you're either not being very forthcoming or you don't have their best interests at heart. So you, you really want to make sure and think through from their point of view, if, particularly if you've got bad news or data that's, un, that's going to be surprising, you know, deadlines that are missed or a learning in your customer research that maybe challenges one of their assumptions. Spend that time to share the context and just go through that ahead of time. And then some magical thing can actually happen. And that is that they can do a complete turnaround where they actually support you in those environments with this bad, quote-unquote, bad news, with a willingness to sort of address and, 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 uh, and uh, you know, they buy into what you're saying, but they're also ready to sort of be on side to actually help you solve it. Uh, I could go into some examples where this has happened to me, but, you know, my, my favourite was uh, for months and months and months we had made commitments to this one stakeholder that he would get some tools to help his team be more efficient. And he'd sort of put off hiring and all sorts of things, process improvements, waiting for these tools. And it was really apparent we're going to miss those deadlines because we were constantly, uh, they were constantly being bumped by revenue generating opportunities. Very Mm -hmm. common. I I was very fearful of the roadmap update that I would have to give him and others in the room about what was going to happen. And, uh, and so I, I went to, to lunch and I previewed him with this and he was very visibly upset and he pushed on me very hard. But uh, towards the end of that discussion, it was apparent to, to him that, that, that this was the right decision. He didn't like it. And actually he said to me, I know we're having this meeting, but I'm going to say that I disagree with this and here's what I'm going to say but I understand why we ended up here. And then he thanked me and said that it was incredibly respectful that I had given him that opportunity to know that this was coming and to think through it so he could actually be ready with some kind of plan. And exactly that happened. The meeting was, there was definitely a moment in the meeting where he was, uh, he said that he was upset, didn't like the outcomes, but he understood them. And he also had his plan B ready where he was able to present it. Now, that meeting would have been an absolute disaster had I not actually spent that time. And I'm not to suggest that suddenly everything was okay and magical. He was still very upset, but it was a much more productive outcome. Definitely. And I think it's that old uh, adage of um, forewarned is forearmed, right? And um, (laughs) simple things like, you know, providing a weekly update, a simple email, you know, when there is bad news, lean into it and and get it on the table as quickly as possible to avoid awkward and pleasant situations for everybody. That's right. And just to believe, you know, to emphasize the point, yes, every role in an organization should be practicing this these buy-in and no-surprise policies. But it's just so much more important for product managers to master this early because of the, the influential nature of their role. And so that's why it, this is under the being influential as a product manager and not just general like training for, mm-hmm. for uh, professionals. Absolutely. And um, 
I've done a fair bit of reading recently on knowing your why. And, um, you know, I've read Simon Sinek's book and um, use it quite a lot in, in my business. And I noticed that um, in your book, you talk about one of the one of the areas to be influential is actually knowing your why, focusing on the problem and not focusing too much on the solution. Do, do you think PMs can sometimes... Um, lose that that focus oh absolutely absolutely (laughs) uh look we are actually the the average product manager is a brilliant problem solver which has a downside that we tend to jump into solutions very quickly we immediately can formulate like ways pass forwards or ways of actually addressing it we have that that innate kind of desire to you know help solve and help our customers address problems. And, and so the kind of behaviors, I mean, the, the, the textbook case of this is, is uh, hearing something from a salesperson of this is the problem we need to solve. And it's very, very specific and, and wanting to go and fix that. Right. But the path that you need to take is actually to, to abstract back out of whatever those, prescribed solutions this is a common thing that stakeholders do they'll talk in terms of solutions but your job is get to the why why is this important what is the root cause that's really going on up here and so you have to abstract out of the solution back into the problem and once you've actually fully understood the problem space which does not happen immediately could actually go from for, for well if you're following some kind of discovery process in your product development cycle that can go for weeks and you have to be disciplined saying, I'm in problem space. I've got to stay up there. I, I want to really, truly understand. And then when the time is ready, you can come back down and almost guaranteed whatever solution you end up with is very, very different because you've much more thoroughly um, understood what the problem is you're trying to solve. Uh, this can happen a- across the board, whether it be the right tool might be or, or automating a business process might be a good idea, but actually you, if you abstract out enough, you might be able to get rid of that business process entirely because it's, it, it's not necessary or something. So there's just these different cases constantly where if you jump into solutions too quickly, you, you miss that opportunity to actually find a better, a better solution. Absolutely. And you mentioned there and it made me chuckle the mm-hmm. the salesperson will say we need to fix X and the product manager will run with it. And it amazes me, um, you know, in my business, Middleton Executive, I recruit product managers every day and I ask them, you know, how do you engage with your customer? And it still yeah, amazes me that a lot of them don't have direct interaction mm. with their customers and and you talk about that in your book a lot mm. understanding your customers and and the quote that i absolutely loved was don't outsource the most important parts of your role well why <laughs> do you think that is uh why why people outsource that that most important part yeah. of their role is it because the organizations are set up that way or yeah. the product person doesn't yeah. want to get close to the customer probably not the latter it's, but I hear a lot of a lot of different excuses, frankly, but mm-hmm. reasons, but excuses. The first is is um, once you understand the critical nature of like whatever whatever inputs are coming into you from secondhand sources have already probably gone through that person's filter, mm-hmm. and that person's filter has probably arrived at a perceived a perception about what the problem really is that might be wrong 
And they may have also arrived at a solution that they think will solve that problem. And that's the first you hear of it. So you're missing all of that primary data and information and mm-hmm. little, little kind of patterns that you can only detect by looking at and talking to many customers over many, many times. Someone's done all that processing for you, so you get a package that may actually not be the right thing. Uh, so uh, that we, we, we often think that is you know, customer research is somebody else's job. We might even have a consumer insights group, a user experience group or something like that. I'm not suggesting that those groups are not important. In fact, you must leverage them. What you can't do is sit at the end of their process. You have to go th- through their process with them and to use those opportunities to influence what questions get asked. You want to see interviews um, and get first-hand kind of information and also keep in mind that what they might be looking for may not be the things you're looking for. So a user experience person might be looking to validate the usability of a, of a product and a consumer insights person might be looking to sort of assess some kind of um, demographic or, or, or uh, psychographic elements. You might be trying to figure out whether or not there's a problem worth solving and neither of them are actually heading you know directly heading uh, addressing that for you so you have different things you're trying to achieve so you have to be part of that 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 process why don't we do it well first of all we we think that those uh people will do it for us mm-hmm. um and again they will play a massively important role particularly in driving the process and structuring in a very professional way but you have to be there for the journey uh, the second thing is we always think we don't have time and we don't. We don't have time, but no one does. Uh, and very simply, the urgent always knocks out that important stuff because the urgent will take precedence because it's kind of now, whereas the important stuff, particularly understanding your customers firsthand, takes a lot of investment over a long period of time to really, really have that, that depth. Uh, the third thing is we don't, under- we don't necessarily value empathy mm-hmm. so when we're building product being able to walk in the shoes of our customer gives us a, a sort of a sixth sense we will see whether or not solutions will actually work particularly user interfaces uh, we will consider that maybe maybe our customer doesn't like our product as much as we do, or maybe they're busy so they don't have time to understand it like we do, or maybe simplicity, we're, we, we, we're thinking of all the complex use cases, but really they're looking for simplicity. We can get this sort of deeper understanding of how customers might approach our, our products with empathy. And you don't get empathy by reading a report. You get it by actually interacting and observing. Uh, and so those are just some of the reasons why we also, I think, think that our primary job is to ship code, but actually it's not. It's to solve meaningful customer problems. So really the bookending of so delivery is one thing, but it's the bookends that are more important. It's making sure that we've understood the customer and we've identified the right problems to solve. And at the other end, it's to validate that we've actually solved those problems and we're, we're optimizing and, and we're, we're making sure that the, prob- the product that we've shipped is being adopted. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, and 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 there you reference leveraging teams to to support you um, in your role. And the key word that really stood out there for me was empathy for for the other teams as well. Mm-hmm. And, and that links into two of the points from how um, product managers can influence um, lead through influence, and that's collaborating to set priorities and partnering as one team. How can product managers improve that? Because I regularly get um, feedback from product managers that there's friction between the different departments and especially with with engineering teams at times. (laughs) It's a very common one. How can they build that empathy and I guess collaborate better and, and have that true partnership mindset? Well, start by saying the conflict is very much purposeful. It's mm-hmm. actually by design because you want you need that healthy tension between, say, a technology group of what's feasible, what's possible, what's the most efficient way to actually deliver something with somebody saying, well, is that actually the right thing for the customer? And, uh, and being able to push each other on that. So uh, the, the problems really come when... Uh, let me talk about engineering for for a moment. I mean, engineering doesn't work for you. They don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you approach engineering as some kind of code shop, yep, you're going to actually really you, you, that's not partnership, and it's not going to work. Eventually, it's not going to work. Uh, they won't want to work with you. They'll lose their motivation and morale. They will do the minimum that you ask for or they will build something that you ask for but not necessarily engage on the, the business problem or the customer problem that you're trying to address. So, so um, that, that's, that's an important thing. It's by design. If you enter it with that sort of understanding and think about, this is a partnership to arrive at the best possible outcome with our different respective skill sets and perspectives. That's okay. Um, so conflict's going to happen. So how do you approach it better? Well, first is back to this why. Focus on the why. Uh, actually encouraging, which I find far too many product managers fail to do, encouraging the ownership of the problem within our engineering counterparts and opening up the 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 options to really in, uh, uh, engage on the potential solutions and what kind of ways could we we tackle this without too much of imposing your own perspective on it is super important so share the context like take that time out actually sit down and say here's all the analysis and the thinking i've been doing give them time to go through that with with you they're going to be needing that time because you've you've way thought ahead of them and if you just jump to the solution say oh therefore this is why we need to do this you've lost that opportunity for them to sort of really buy into this is worth solving and i'm going to actually put in my 40 50 whatever 60 hours a week to really nail this problem to the wall because it's that important that energy and excitement um so involving engineering early during discovery, bringing them along is really super important. Holding those kickoffs and sort of making sure you spend time to go back before you move forward. And then okay. uh, another, another important thing is to make sure that as you, you work together, holding regular retrospectives to sort of say, how can we improve working together, picking only one or two things to work on with each of those, making that work over a period of a year, you will 
have improved, you know, 10 to 20 key things of your, your working together and it'll be much, much more effective. So uh, that, that's kind of that. You also talk about collaborating with setting to pr- priorities. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so prioritization is, is, is such a big issue, right? We all, it's, a, it's such a struggle uh, because we can, we re- it's, it's, it's an area of our role that we hate doing at some level. No one can ever agree. We're not quite sure like how to, how to like compare something that might drive some revenue against this strategic idea or, you know, getting a short term versus a long term thing invested in. So these things are really, really complicated. So uh, I, I kind of flip it on its head saying that the prioritization is actually constant. It's something you can iterate at uh, over time and constantly be kind of re- looking at things, not so revisiting entirely your different strategy, but constantly feeding new information in. Uh, the process, that process is actually the, the easy bit. People are the hard bit. <laughs> uh, the, so the key is can you align first on what kind of user and business goals are you actually trying to achieve? before you talk about features. If you can get an, uh, some level of alignment, and you will never get consensus, there will always be some dissenting voices, there will always be disagreement. If you, if you really surface, what are the criteria by which you can then prioritise first and have general agreement that we're trying to optimise for these user goals or these business goals, then... Uh, then putting all the different ideas and features up against that, you'll have a much greater chance of actually succeeding at prioritization, particularly if you do it through an inner, sort of a uh, collaborative style where people understand when you've looked at a criteria and you've assessed something, why something ended up sort of low on the list. Uh, if, you can, if you can really get alignment on goals first, you, you stand a much better chance of, of prioritizing all of these different features and that I assume would then make it easier for successful product managers to manage the trade-offs and, and, and you identify that as being a key element for, for influence in the PM role. Is there anything else that, that PMs can do to keep teams on track and, and, and manage those trade-offs? <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, uh, product, let me, let me talk about like, the, d- the development part of the of the delivery part of the of the process here. Uh, so, if you've done a good enough job up front to sort of be clear on what your success criteria are for for any specific initiative, then you have kind of the framework to then look at scope, timelines, different trade offs that might come up. If you don't have that, you you, you don't have the framework to then assess uh what should go in what should go out so one of the things that drives me absolutely not nuts i'm not a fan of moscow at all is having a ton of nice to haves and should haves in your kind of your list of requirements Mm -hmm. make the decision and and focus on what are the must-haves to deliver against those goals for the simple reason that the quicker you can get to a product that delivers those must-haves, the more you get something into market, the more you start alleviating that customer's pain and the platform you set up now, you can now iterate on. So don't pad, you know, don't, don't 
make your user like interface complicated and your timelines extended and all the development complexity by having all of these these should haves must haves choose what really really matters and deliver that so that's the first being really tough upfront uh, then secondly uh, you have to admit that we're not going to find everything up front, all the scope and all the scope creep. We're going to learn new things as we go. So you have to set that expectation and say, we are going to enter a discovery period where we're going to learn new things and we're going to have to revisit scope. This is particularly important, particularly with more junior or traditional engineering teams. They kind of want everything defined up front. It's very hard to engage them. They're, in the book, I go through some techniques about breaking that down over time, but you can see if you can get them to, uh, to engage more on um, working in ambiguity, so long as you don't then turn around and say you need to make a time commitment, a firm time commitment. So it's about like trying to like get them to enge engage around like this process scoping in ambiguity but then learning as we go. And then scope creep, what is often thought of scope creep, actually is natural. The unnatural scope creep is when stakeholders start bolting things on, you know, add this to this, or you decide, oh, I, maybe I'm going to just add more, more features to it without having the same level of discipline you might have had up front. That's bad scope creep. The, the, the other technique I really recommend in terms of making the trade-offs is you will not necessarily be in the right position to make tech debt-related trade-offs or quality-related trade-offs. So respect that, acknowledge that you won't necessarily have all the details and then trust your technical leads and architects and engage them around the types of trade-offs that you're making on the quality side so you're not building in just like basically the, uh, a lot of tech debt that then comes back and bites you from a quality perspective once you actually deliver in market. The worst cases are where you launch something and suddenly you have to rebuild everything because what was launched was, was, was the fast way instead of the correct way. Uh, so being sensitive on that. And then finally around uh, managing deadlines, there's a lot of um, advice in the book about how to manage that. It's, it's the thing that many stakeholders go to because it's the lever they think they can pull hmm. about setting a tough, aggressive deadline. It is very poor behavior when that happens. You have to become skilled over time of redirecting the conversation to goals, outcomes, and, and iteration to get to your, 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 a product as quickly as possible. Uh, but knowing that, it's, that to create something that's actually very usable and viable and for a customer that can deliver those outcomes, you may not know whether you can do that in two months, three months, or six months. So, uh, try to really be sensitive around uh, date setting. Uh, <laughs> avoid making firm, firm commitments if you can. Spending some time in discovery before you do. And uh, when you do do some kind of date setting, don't just pad your timelines. Actually explain your confidence and how are we, you know, are we confident it's here and if you need a higher level of confidence, how much longer would you need to be like 80% confident or 90% confident? So talking sort of those ranges um, will will set you up for more success. I love that. And lots of practical tips to really help people manage a part that is is quite difficult to to manage. You you talk about 
the influential PM owning outcomes and and not projects. Mm -hmm. And I have noticed a a trend when recruiting um, product managers myself that they do want to move on when the project is delivered. (laughs) Essentially, the product is shipped. And Mm -hmm. and not a lot of people have that full product lifecycle experience. Do you think to be that influential PM and to have that, they actually have to stick it out and and own that once once it's out in the market? This is a great question, and I'm not going to be naive to suggest that we're often victims of our organizational designs and the fact that we're a resource that gets shifted onto something else very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not as easy as, uh, you know, I'm going to just own the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in your mindset, knowing that the product release is actually the start of the marathon, not the end. And knowing that the whole purpose of building the product in the first place was to drive an outcome for your customers and your business. If you do not complete that feedback loop to make sure you actually achieve those goals and report back whether or not you did, and if you didn't, what we can do about it, you may... You, you, you may have just wasted everybody's time. And just releasing a product does not necessarily mean you're actually solving the problem for the market. That's the, that's the key thing to, to, to realize. So how do you influence the importance of that over time? Well, the, the, the first thing I would do is no matter what you're, you're working on next, take the time out after launch, sometime after launch, to go back over your success criteria and your KPIs and look at how your product did and report that out as a dashboard, as a, as a, as a, as a state of, you know, uh, to complete the, 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 the loop, here's how the product actually did with, an, with actually identifying potential optimizations and improvements that you might recommend. And it may well be, given that the, the releasing the product was in, was thought to be important enough like when it was prioritized first of all if it hasn't hit its goals it's probably more important to go back and make the product hit its goal than go do the next thing and so you may be just very successful drawing attention to the data of how something's actually going to then get uh resources freed up to be able to optimize that product uh, so that's that's my my biggest uh, recommendation is you you, you ha- go and look at the outcomes Go and talk to customers, figure out whether it was adopted, figure out whether it solved the problem and go look at the, the business uh, results of it. That doesn't necessarily just mean revenue. It could be customer satisfaction. It could be increased conversion, greater engagement, whatever those things were, go and measure it. Now, there is an assumption here that you actually took the time out to define those outcomes before you started the process. Yes. And so that's the other area that you as a product manager can influence very heavily is if you draw attention to the outcomes you're trying to drive and ensure that not only are those things kind of defined on paper, but you're also ensuring that your development team puts the appropriate tracking and reporting into the product. So being able to get that data at the end is very, is much easier. And that's where many of us fall down, I think. Absolutely. And um, that's the final point that, that you discuss in the book is measure what matters. And, and I'm part of a lot of product groups and 
the most common topic that's discussed is what should I be measuring? And this is from small startups to huge companies and there's PMs from <laughs> all corners of the world just dropping these comments into uh, these, these chat rooms and these groups that I'm part of. What, what should PMs be me- measuring? <laughs> well, we've got four other podcasts on this one to do. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is that one thing? If just because I know we're uh, running yeah, we're, uh, time. Exactly. One thing. Yes, I do, I do have an answer to this. It might be a little unsatisfying, but <laughs> what, what metric or metrics show that you've actually delivered value to your customer? And it's not a vanity metric, not number of customers using it, not page views, not revenue even. What metric will get to the heart of whether or not your customers are now able to derive value out of your product that wasn't there before? Now, double-clicking on that could be you're going to want to look at adoption, you're going to want to look at discovery, you're going to want to look at, obviously, payment. Uh, so in, in the book, I talk about like looking looking at the actual flows of the product and where people are going. I talk about like um, behaviors that you want to see over time, like repeat usage, and d- these are all probably pretty obvious as I say them. Uh, from a financial perspective, I don't actually think uh, that uh, revenue is a great metric. I think customer lifetime value is a much more powerful metric because it talks about your ability to attract, retain a customer and extract financial value out of that customer over a longer period of time uh, as, a, as a superior financial metric. So those are the sorts of things I'm talking about. But at the end of the day, you, the reason why this is hard to answer is that every product is different and every project is different. And so you have to determine what is going to show me that customers are really actually deriving value. And if they derive value, then I, then I should be able to figure out how to uh, grow that and extract my fair share of that value out. That's a great succinct answer to uh, a topic that I think could be another episode <laughs> that I'll have to see if I can get you on for. Um, sure. And look, as we, as we um, wrap up, there was one sentence in your book that absolutely resonated with me and I loved it it was the um the sentence be a low maintenance employee you'll earn trust (laughs) and become part of the inner circle and everything you've just shared today will absolutely help people achieve that um I love that oh thank you it's a it's an interesting quote in that it means you have to put up with a lot uh, <laughs> complaining, complaining endlessly about not having enough time or resources to do things is not—it's not a very attractive trait in a product manager. We, yeah, do do your best, optimistically, with a smile on your face, to get things done, knowing that every this is all tough. And mm-hmm. executives don't have a magic wand either. They, you know, they may seem like they they can, but they can't just suddenly make engineers or more resources appear. And if they do, then they've probably made some really tough trade-offs somewhere else in the business. So it's part of really being empathetic mm-hmm. in your workplace, and and um, look, we're, we're not we're not supposed to be inhuman, where everything's a smile and happiness. We're, the 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 going's going to get tough. How mm-hmm. we deal with it—that's what I mean by that statement. If you deal with it with with grace and discipline, and you do what you can, and you don't seek constant like. 
praise for just doing a job uh, where you're, you're, you're con- you know, we, we often have these um, uh, uh, imposter syndrome issues as product managers. Mm-hmm. Uh, be confident, be curious, and do the best you can for your customer and just be happy with that. That's, that's what that really, really means. I love it. Ken, you've shared so many nuggets of gold with us today. Thank you. How can we stay connected with you? Sure. Well, I would uh, love you to uh, visit my website. Uh, it's influentialpm.com. There's some talks there. There's uh, some uh, more information on the book and, uh, and, and so forth. Uh, I am, I'm one of those people that actually will happily connect to any, anybody in the industry because I do believe that uh, just having a really great connection to other product managers out there uh, or people who aspire to be product managers. So please do just feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Uh, that's just uh, LinkedIn uh, slash in slash Ken Sandy, K-E-N-S-A-N-D-Y. And of course, you can connect to me by purchasing the book. Uh, you will, it's the Influential Product Manager, uh, How to Lead and Launch Successful Technology Products. Uh, it came out in January. And uh, we'd love you to uh, to check it out. Favorite booksellers. There are there's online. There's a the ebook version, PDF and ebook version. There's the paperback version. There's even an audiobook version. But no, I did not actually narrate that myself. <laughs> Fantastic. And look, we uh, we will include all of those links um, that you just mentioned in our show notes, so everyone can access it really easily. Ken, you've been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the Product Edge. You've been, yeah, amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really thrilled to, to be here. I'm loving what you're doing too. Like it really uh, sharing all these best practices and, and really evolving the, the, the craft. It's fantastic. So I'm, I've been delighted and humbled to be on, on, the, on the podcast. Thanks, Ken. We can learn more about influencing and the skills and behaviors employed by outstanding product managers in the Influential Product Manager, which is available on Amazon now. And we will include all the links in the show notes. So please get yourself a copy. You will absolutely love it as much as I did. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.